continue our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. We shall be concluding this book this afternoon, Lord willing. Please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I'll read the chapter, make a prayer, then we shall consider verse 12 to 14. Ecclesiastes 12. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors of the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden ball is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like God's and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond this, of, many, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its great warnings, its great encouragements, its great admonitions to us. We pray that you may help us this afternoon through the preaching and the hearing of your word, that our inner man may be strengthened by your spirit to receive your truth and that we may be quickened to these truths, that we may seek to hide it in our hearts, that we may receive it, for your word is sweeter than honey, honey, honey from the honeycomb. Your, your word is more precious than silver or gold, that we may see it that way this afternoon, Lord, as the word is preached. We pray that you may open the eyes of our hearts, that you may grant us the spirit of uh, revelation that we may receive it your word and this word may richly dwell in our hearts we ask for much grace lord for we know that we are weak people we pray that 
you may keep the distractions away from us and that our focus may be to the hearing of your word. We pray that Christ may speak to us through the proclamation of your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have walked our way through this book and this evening we come to the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes. Last time we considered verse 9, 10 and 11 on the title The Wise Preacher and we saw Solomon being the author of this book was a wise preacher because he taught the people knowledge. Look at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Solomon was the teacher of the people, the teacher of the word of God. And he sought to give us in this verse an insight into how he wrote this book. He says, he weighed and studied and arranged many proverbs with great care. So he pondered and weighed the wisdom. So the teachings in this book were contemplated over and over again. There was research, there was study involved, and there was meditation, and there was careful arrangement of these proverbs. And so he let us know that this is the presentation of truth and knowledge, that he weighed every element that he has presented to us. And so he explained to us, he applies this wisdom uh, this wisdom of God to us for the blessing and the growth of those who hear. And then secondly, he told us, he told us in verse 10 that uh, he was a wise preacher because he sought acceptable words of truth. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The preacher thought that it was important for his readers to enjoy his work. So these words, he says, they are words that are delightful, words of joy, words of pleasure, words that are pleasing to the ear. Additionally, these words are not only delightful, but he says also that they are words of truth, end of verse 10. So they were written uprightly. He wrote an accurate and correct word of truth. And so these are words that are faithful, that are fixed. These are words that you can build your life upon because these are eternal words. These these are the very words of God. God is never going to change. And so these words are never going to change. And then lastly, we saw the source of his wisdom. Verse 11. The words of the wise are like gods and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So this book we saw is the product of divine revelation. This is not wisdom of man under the sun. It is not man under the sun trying to understand life. God is revealing truth to Solomon. And so so as much as he writes his experience, the Holy Spirit is carrying him along as he writes it. And so this is God-breathed scripture. And so this is a book like any other book in the Bible. Verse 11, he tells us that the purpose of these truths is to move people. He says the words of the wise are like gods are like, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. The wisdom that he packaged for us, the wisdom that he researched, he, he, he weighed, he studied, he arranged, this wisdom 
ought to move men into action. And this word of God, he says, is like God's. It is like nails firmly fixed. And so he's talking about God here as the one true shepherd, the source of these words. God is the one who gave him these words as he wrote them. And so these truths are supposed to move people into action. And so it's not simply a matter of investigating the truth. There must always be the application of the truth. And he likens the word of God to God's. This long, sharp stick that is used to prod a lethargic cow into action. This is to say that he did not teach people just to impress them on his wisdom. But the word of God should be like this long, sharp stick that gets people into action. And then he says the word of God is also like nails firmly fixed. And we consider that, that this is an imagery of one taking a nail and hitting through someone's head. And the truth is like a nail that is hidden, that, that is hit into your head. And the preacher here is advocating that truth must be driven home, isn't it? It must be done effectively time and time again. There's no point in working hard in preparing a sermon and presenting it if there will be no application in the word of God. So this book is inspired like the rest of scripture. And it is God-breathed words. This afternoon, Solomon's commands us to give attention to something very important as well. From verse 12 to verse 14, I'll read, My son, beware of anything beyond this, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon is telling us this afternoon, here is the conclusion of the old matter. The sermon is titled, The End of the Matter. The End of the Matter. The first point in verse 12 is a warning. Be warned. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond this, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Be warned. And then secondly, verse 13, fear God and keep his commandments. He says in verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the old duty of man. Then thirdly, for God will bring every deed into judgment. That's the third point. For God will bring every deed into judgment. And so we come to the first point. Be warned. Solomon is saying, there's something ahead of us that is potentially dangerous that needs to be avoided. He says, beware of anything. The NIV and the NASB renders 
the word warning, be warned. So, be warned of what? Of making many books is no end. Is Solomon saying that we should not study other books apart from the Bible? No. Solomon is warning us here in verse 12 against an inspired wisdom. Against pursuing wisdom of man. NIV says, be warned my son of anything in addition to them of making many books there is no end and much study where is the body NSB but beyond this my son be warned what Solomon is warning us here against going beyond the inspired word of God these words are given by one shepherd and therefore we are warned beyond going the word beyond the words of the of the one true shepherd and this warning has to be seen in light of the book as a whole. And this warning could be something like this. Look out for those who seek to find the meaning to the mysteries of life outside of God. Watch out against human philosophy, against myths, against fables that go beyond the boundary of what has been said here. You see, there will always be people will want to solve the puzzles of life, the vanities of life, using human wisdom, by doing, by going beyond what is written. Those who want to go beyond scripture, Solomon wants them here. And says there's no end to writing books. And, th- and so he's, he's, he's espousing the, the wisdom of man, the foolishness of man. There's no end to the foolishness of man. That's what he's saying here. And the books that Solomon has in mind are the books that seek to scrutinize the inscrutable. Books that seek to understand the things that are cannot be understood. You see, the Bible says that the secret things belong to God, isn't it? If man sought to understand the things that God has hidden from him, Solomon says here that it, is, it will be fr- frustrating it will be painful and sorrowful. We've seen it throughout the book. If so, to find meaning in pleasure, in parties, in agriculture, in, in, in many women, in all kinds of food. But he falls short. Because meaning is not found in those things. Solomon says, of making many books, there's no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Someone is saying to devote your energy to searching for that kind of human wisdom is indeed wearisome. You see, what the book of Ecclesiastes has taught us is that there's an enigma, there's a puzzle in life which we cannot figure out. And you, can, you cannot figure it out because it is part of God's design. That is how God has designed everything. And so if it is part of God's design, you're never going to know the vanity of life. You're never going to solve all the mysteries of life. It is in the hands of God. And so why waste your time listening to people with PhD who tell you that they have solution to the problems of man. They are lying. 
because they only have an illusion. Solomon is saying, don't waste your time reading books like those. Don't give your devotion to that kind of reading because it's going to wear you out. He says that there's no end to making of such books. There's no end to such foolishness of man. Because books like those will continue to be published throughout all generations. So you go to college and you read books about famous scholars, famous inventors. And your lecturer makes you think that they were the smartest people, that they solved the mysteries of life. Yet the Bible tells us that there are mysteries we cannot figure out. Those people have gone outside the boundary of the Bible. And so, in verse 9 and 10, we see that the preacher taught the people knowledge. The preacher sought to find words of acceptable, uh, sought to find acceptable words of delight. But in verse 12, he tells us that there is limitation to this study. That we should only study the things that are commanded by God. That a lot of study may prevent one from being obedient to other commands of God, like enjoying life. Another thing I'd like you to see from this passage in verse 12 is that scripture is sufficient for life and godliness. The word of God contains all the words that God intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. The word of God contains everything that we need for salvation and obedience. That's because God is an infinite being. If God is infinite and this is his word, it means that this word cannot exhaust him, isn't it? There is no book that can contain everything about God. That's why when you get to heaven, we'll always be learning about God because he is an infinite being and we are finite beings. And so what he has given us in this book is sufficient for you to know God. It is adequate for everything that you need on a day-to-day basis. That's why you do not need to seek human philosophy and human wisdom for the solutions of your problems. Anything that goes beyond scripture is not necessary. That's why we need to be content with what God tells us. Because the secret things belong to him. What he has not revealed to us, they are not necessary for us to know. Solomon says, if you sought to understand those things, it will wear you out. It will be frustrating, very disappointing, very toilsome and painful. Let me read a quote here by Richard Baxter in, the Reform, in his book, Reform, Reform Pastor. He says, your study of physics and other sciences is not worth a rush if it be not God that you seek after in them. To see and admire, to reverence and adore, to love and delight in God as exhibited in his works. This is true and only philosophy. The contrary is mere foolery and is so called again and again by God himself. 
This is the sanctification of your studies when they are devoted to God and when he is the end, the object, and the life of them all. He's saying everything about your studies, God should be the end of it. God should be the object of it. God should be the life of them all. If you study in your, in your, in your college and the things you study, they have nothing to do with God, then it is, uh, um, Baxter says, it is mere foolery. It is of no profit to you. And so God offers wisdom for us that is sufficient for this life. If Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. God has provided for us this large reserve of truth. Yet so many people want to find solution outside of the Bible. And so be admonished, be warned by the words of the one true shepherd. Be warned because these words are like, says that these words are like gods. These words are like nails firmly fixed. Be warned by those words of the one true shepherd, not to God, not to go beyond scripture. Because these are words breathed out by God. And so take this counsel, take this wisdom to heart. Take this message as your guide, as your direction. Because Solomon could have written so many books. But he says, it's not enough for all of you to read everything. This is not to say that the writing of men cannot be profitable. There are certain areas, certain places in which we profit from the knowledge of man. But the word of God is the only rule for life and faith. That's what he means. That's why this book, we should be very grateful that this book is able to make one wise to salvation. Each of the words of this book are more wealthier than gold and silver. It is sweeter than, than honey, isn't it? So what we need to know has been given to us, brethren. What God deemed not necessary for us to know, he withheld it. And so we need to find solution in what has been given to us. And then secondly, verse 13 the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The second point, fear God and keep his commandments. He tells us the conclusion, after all has been heard. This is the totality of his teaching in the book. In other words, once his teaching and wisdom has been received, this conclusion becomes very clear. Once the case has been made, then the summation of this case is very obvious. And so Solomon draws up a conclusion here in two ways. Fear God. Then secondly, keep his commandments. This is a summary statement of a lifetime of investigation and experience. And you can see that this is the summary statement of the whole of scripture. Fear God and keep his commandments. Solomon is telling us here, in a nutshell, what he has learned about life. 
your life can be boiled down to this fear God and keep his commandments someone may be wondering Solomon you are the one of the richest people who ever lived why will you not give us financial tips Solomon you are the king of Israel take us through a leadership seminar Solomon you dated all these women give us dating tips Solomon you, you had all this wisdom but he says the best I can give you is to fear God and to keep his commandments and I can tell you this is something that is missing in our society today there is lack of the fear of God Solomon is saying I've lived this life and what I've found out about life it boils down to fearing God and keeping his commandments. Job 28 verse 28 says, And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. See, when people come to church and they think that they owe God something, it's because they do not know the fear of the Lord. When people come to church, and they think that they should receive the blessings of God because they think they are entitled to it, they do not know the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, brethren, first of all, is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of sinners. Jeremiah 32, verse 38 to 40, I'll read. Jeremiah 32, verse 38 to 40. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. You see, God is saying here that fearing God is the work of the Holy Spirit because it is God who takes the heart of stone and turns it to a heart of flesh through regeneration and God is saying here that he's going to give them an, a new heart is going to give them one way that they may fear me forever for their own good. And God is saying again that in verse 40, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. See, God promises here to take those who are rebels, those who are sinners like us, those who are his enemies, those who are disobedient, and make them his own people, his own treasure. That's why you as a Christian, after, you, after, the, after, after your heart is changed, you begin to love God. You begin to love the things of God. You begin to delight in him. Because you've been given a new heart, a new attitude, a new desire through the work of regeneration. We turn away from our own desires, our own pleasures, 
and begin to seek him and to do his commandments. Solomon says, for this is the whole duty of man. Can be translated simply, the whole of man. And so it isn't so much to do with duty. It is saying, this is who you are. This is what you were created for. Fear God. To fear God is to live in constant awareness of his presence. God becomes a reality for you more than anything else. God becomes so significant to you more than your life itself. You see, you were created to have a right relationship with God. And the first thought that should enter your mind before you make a choice is, what what does God say about this? That shows your fear of God. These two exhortations are very much related. I'll read Proverbs verse nine to ten, verse chapter nine, verse ten. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The Bible is saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, in the sense that the fear of the Lord is the controlling principle to all wisdom. It is the first principle. It is the rudimentary principle to all wisdom. And so you'll never be wise if you do not fear God. John Murray says that God, I quote, God is the soul of godliness. And so the fear of God has two sides. One side is fear, the other side is obedience. We have the example of Abraham. He went to offer his son Isaac Mount Moriah and um, and before he took the knife to slaughter his son the Bible says the angel called to him from heaven and said Abraham Abraham and he said here I am he said do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me You see the connection there. The connection between fearing God and obeying God. Because Abraham feared God, he was willing to obey God. He was willing to sacrifice his only son. And so the connection is this. Keeping the commandments of God is the outward expression of an inward reality, which is fearing God. I repeat that connection again. Keeping the commandments of God is the outward expression of the inward reality which is fearing God. If you fear God, the outward expression of it is keeping the commandments of God. And so you live in constant awareness of God. And if you live in constant awareness of God and you continue to violate the law of God, it shows that there's no fear of God in you. You see, Keeping the commandments of God substantiates that you fear God. Jesus says in John 14 verse 15, If you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments, isn't it? John 15 verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
see, Jesus is not telling us to do anything that he has not done. He says, keep my commandments as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And so that demonstrates the relationship between fear, fearing the Lord and obedience. To fear the Lord is to tremble before the Lord because of his holiness, because of his character, because of his wrath against all ungodliness. To fear God is opposition to all kinds of unrighteousness and wickedness. Obedience, on the other hand, is a humble recognition of God's rightful authority. It should be clear in your mind that these two things come together in the conclusion. To fear God is to obey God's moral commands, which include his command for us to be joyful. To fear God means to trust God in the face of vanity, isn't it? In the face of so many questions that we have in life. To fear God means that you trust him, you depend upon him, even, even though you do not have answers to your suffering, to your pain. You trust in him. Since God is good, he's gracious, he's wonderful. This obedience entails morally obedient life and a joyful life in the context in the context of this book and so it's not simply walking uprightly but also walking joyfully in the presence of god this is the duty of man this is the duty of every man no one is exempted this responsibility falls on every man whether jew or gentile Every person who comes into this world, whether they are born in South America or in Asia or in Africa or in Australia, no matter who you are, no matter what time frame you enter into this world, this is the duty of every person to fear God and obey his commandments. This is true of Hindus, of Muslims, of every religion. Everyone is obligated to fear God and to keep his commandments. Everyone has an inherent obligation to fear God and keep his commandments. This is because man is made in the image of God. The law of God is written in their hearts. And even though they suppress the truth, it does not mean that they do not have a conscience. And see, when you seek to fear God, you surrender to him. If you do not fear God, you cannot keep his commandments. If you do not fear God, you will not be ready to face the judgment of God. That's what he's going to tell us in verse 14. And so you come to the final words. And this applies to all men, isn't it? The God that we fear is the God we will give an account. Listen to verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the third point, for God's judgment awaits us. For God will bring every deed into judgment. You see, this is a sobering reality. We are going to face a divine judgment. I'm not sure whether you've thought of it very seriously. But if you do not fear God, if you do not obey God, there will be a terrible day for you when you meet him on the day of judgment. If you want to live your life the way you want to choose, the reality is, one day, every secret thing will be made known. 
Everything would be brought in light of God's judgment. The Bible says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 1 Corinthians 5.10 And then Paul goes on to say, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. For what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Romans 2 verse 6 sorry Romans 2 verse 16 on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus this should be a warning to us brethren it should be good news to your ears if you're walking in the fear of the Lord and obeying God because you know that it is evidence that your heart has been changed. That Christ has suffered the wrath of God in your on your behalf and has taken your sins away. Derek Kidnail quote him. He says, The last verse of all drives home the point just made with a final blow that is sharp enough to hurt but shrewd enough to jolt us out of apathy. It kills complacency to know that nothing goes unnoticed and unassessed, even the things that we disguise from ourselves. You see, if you do not fear God and keep his commandments, even the sins that you committed in your childhood, the sins that you cannot even remember, they'll be brought to light. You see here, nothing, es- nothing escapes God, our creator. And so you need to live your life in view of God's judgment. If you know that Christ Jesus has been judged on your behalf, you can live your life with freedom, with joy, isn't it? Because you know that there is no enmity between you and God. You can enjoy your life because you know when you stand before God one day, He will accept you. And so we have confidence that even though there is injustice in this world, one day justice will prevail. And so we need to view our whole life in view of this perspective. This should also cause you to seize every opportunity. Don't waste your time. Seize today. Seize every minute of it. Of it. That great day is a scary day, isn't it? When everything will be unmasked. Everything that looks confusing to us today. Everything that happens in this country that we do not know. The plans and the schemes of evil men, everything will be brought to light. The Lord will shine his spotlight on all things. Nothing will be hidden from his all-searching eye. Jesus Christ will reward good and will punish evil. Those who have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ will dwell in the presence of God eternally.
God will search out the hearts of stubborn men. God will reveal to us whether you lied, whether you stole, the thoughts that, wicked thoughts that run in your mind, God will make them known to us. And it is Jesus Christ who is going to judge the whole earth. Jesus says, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. John 5.22 Peter's commands on the day of Pentecost commanded all men to repent, isn't it? In Revelation chapter 20, we have a very, very scary picture. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Every mankind is going to stand before this great white throne and they are going to be judged by the judge of all the earth. God is going to bring every work to judgment, including every secret thing. There will be no place to hide. You cannot, you cannot send a representative. Your parent cannot represent you. Your lawyer cannot represent you. All of us must stand before the great white throne. If you're a child of God, it will be a glorious, majestic day when you shall see your Savior face to face. If you do not have Christ, it will be a terrible day. Listen to what uh, Revelation 6 says. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? See, brethren, it is a day, we sing the day of judgment, day of wonder, isn't it? If you do not have Christ, you can meet him as your savior right now rather than your judge later on. God is going to judge every secret thing. Secrets that have been there for many years. Secrets that are not known to men. God is going to uncover them. And he's going to judge the sins of all men. That is why you should fear God and keep his commandments, isn't it? They go together. You fear God and keep his commandments to avoid the judgment of God that is coming. Every idle word that you speak will be judged. Jesus says that. He says, but your words will be condemned. And then lastly, applications. <clears throat> First application, 
Life is brief and often frustrating. Life is brief and often frustrating. Live for the things that are eternal. Do not live for the things that are not worth living for. Enjoy the wife of your youth. Enjoy the food. Enjoy relationship. But live for the things that are eternal. Secondly, life is transient. And you often cannot understand it. Life is transient. Life is passing away. And you cannot understand it. And often you cannot understand it. And the exhortation in this book is, do not try to understand it. Do not demand an explanation from God. Because God has designed that way. And then thirdly, life is unsatisfying, therefore look to Christ. Life is unsatisfying, therefore look to Christ. Remember we've gone through this book. Solomon sought to find pleasure in the things of this world and he came up with this conclusion, all is vanity. Let me ask you, do you live your life independent of God? Do you write your own rules? Do you live your own life? Do you have your own agenda? Do you determine your own destiny? If that is the case, then there is no fear of God in you. And then fourthly and lastly, everything outside of Christ is utter vanity. Everything outside of Christ is utter vanity. And we've seen this book is filled with practical instructions. And it shows us the insufficiency of the creature, isn't it? And the sufficiency of Christ. This world is full of disappointment. And people drink and they thirst again. They drink alcohol and they thirst again and again. People indulge in all kinds of delicious food, all kinds of pleasures they can find, but it cannot satisfy their deeper longing in their hearts. People take drugs, but they're still not happy. People pour themselves into relationships and friendships, but they still end up empty. People give themselves to career and work, but they're never satisfied. People drink in pleasure. They involve themselves in recreation and work and friendship. But they thirst again and again. Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that you can drink and never be thirsty again. And so this book is showing us that true pleasure does not consist in food, in success, in work, in relationships, in marriage, in rich, in the material possessions. God is the ultimate substitute for everything. Nothing can be a substitute for the Lord. And you can see in the world, people are gasping for hope. People are looking for joy and happiness. They are looking for meaning to life. But they are looking in vain. They should be looking to Christ who is the supreme good. 
who is the satisfying portion. There's no other portion that will satisfy you apart from Christ. And so I urge you this evening, come to the precious Savior Jesus Christ and let him be your portion. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this book. This is a book you've given to your church. This is a book that you've given to your people. We pray that you may help us to realize that happiness does not consist in material possession. Happiness is not found in the things of this world. Joy and happiness can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for those who do not know you, that they may seek you. That you may change their hearts of stone to a heart of flesh. That they may repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and kindness as we've gone through this book. Thank you for the things that we've learned together. Thank you that your word is like God's. Your word is like nails firmly fixed. We pray that you may accomplish much good through the preaching of the word. These things we pray in Jesus' name.